Welcome to the University of Arizona Center for Compassion Studies. This is Conversations on Compassion, and I am Leslie Langbert. Thanks so much for listening. If, like me, I feel as though you're listening, like me, you're feeling the urgency in these days to do whatever we can to expand our feelings of compassion, to take action so that the world becomes a more just and loving place. There are many things that we're seeing in the news and the state of affairs today that can really cause us to question how available compassion is can also, I think, cause us to question our own efficacy. What can we do? Can we make a difference? Is it enough? Can it come fast enough? I'm talking today with Brooke Dodson Lavelle. She's the co-founder and president of a really amazing organization called the Courage of Care Coalition based in the Bay Area. And their mission is to empower both personal and social transformation by providing deep contemplative training coupled with powerful tools for systemic change. They support individuals, organizations, and communities in realizing a more courageous, caring, an equitable world. This organization provides retreats, workshops, intensives, and for those that are interested in, in really bringing this into their work in a very deliberate way, a year-long training in facilitating sustainable compassion training. I met Brooke years ago. She and I had the same meditation teacher in Atlanta. Brooke was earning her PhD at Emory at that time. And she introduced me to cognitively based compassion training. Brooke is one of the few people that I know who has such passion, such commitment for sharing contemplative practice, for expanding compassion and sharing these teachings particularly with young people and with children. She's one of the few people I know who have actually adapted these practices to share with young people and with children. In her work these days, she's focused mostly on working with adults, really kind of bringing this ability to feel compassion and to transform the work from something that we do as kind of an internal or an individual process to really expanding so that we are more aware, that we are more responsive, not only to our own experience of suffering, but really becoming more responsive and aware to the suffering that is happening all around us, that has always been happening and for many of us, we have been aware of this always. And for some of us, it is a, a harsh truth that we are awakening to. Her work is really powerful. 
I'm really proud to call her my friend. I'm really excited that you are here to hear what she has to say, to listen to this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Before we begin with it, I want to give you a way to learn more about her work and what she does. You can visit her website, courageofcare.org. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome, Brooke. I'm so, so glad to be here having this conversation on compassion with you. Thank you so much for joining me. So I want to make sure our audio is okay. Um, you can hear me. Okay, you're a little bit muted. Is this better if I hang over the Yes, yes, way better, way better. All right. Okay, so I know you are so busy in Oakland and I mean really all over the country um, delivering training workshops. Um, let's talk about that. What You just finished a training, so let's start there. What are you working on? Tell me the exciting news. So just this past weekend, a team of us here at the Courage Headquarters in Oakland led a workshop um, for white folks interested in learning more about systems of domination and oppression, especially the way we are affected by, participate in, and actually even perpetuate white supremacy. And this was a group of contemplative trained participants who have a background in contemplative practice but are really looking to kind of push the boundary of their practice and understand <laughs> actually in some ways the limits of just exploring contemplative practice in this individual model and recognizing the need for us to step up in light of our current socio-political climate, um, although none of this is really new, but to really step up and, and learn and, and take responsibility for what we're participating in and what's on the horizon if we really don't get it together actually pretty quickly. Um, this is super powerful. Let's just jump right in on the deep end. So tell me more about this in terms of um, the folks that attended this retreat. Is this really kind of for their own expansion of their own awareness to then carry it into their own lives and interactions? Or are they, are they bringing this to bear in the organizations and in systems? Um, yeah, so courage is in a way kind of oriented, I think, in two directions. In one way, we kind of grew in a response to the contemplative movement, and I'm speaking really generally. Of course, there are many wonderful things happening, but we grew in response to what we perceived to be was a movement that was really focused inward, that had kind of maybe even lost touch with a sense of the structures and systems within which were embedded, and that many of the contemplative traditions in modern America that a number of us have encountered, whether there's some variation of Buddhist, Protestant, Jewish, et cetera, have this really strong and kind of insidious individual or narrow focus on the person and that our path to kind of waking up is about our own self-development. 
And that translates to our approach to thinking actually about systems. And it feels like in the movement, a lot of us feel that if we just train enough people in mindfulness or compassion practices, and we just get enough of those programs in school or in health systems, of course, those are helpful to a certain extent. But there seems to be this driving belief that if we just do that, all of the systems of poverty, inequity, oppression will kind of just fall away. And we were realizing, in part because we were part of that problem, we're part of that process, that that actually wasn't saving the world as quickly as we'd all want to. <laughs> yes. You know, many well-intentioned people, and we started saying, wow, there's a whole other world out there that we're not even tapping. And um, there are a lot of people, and this is not news to you, especially trained as a social worker, who do work in thinking about systems and thinking about structures of domination and oppression. And so part of Courage grew out of this really strong desire to kind of call in all of our contemplative friends and say, hey, there is something really powerful in what you're holding, and the possibility for it is totally being stifled if we don't attend to these broader systems, right? Right, so that was right. like, wow, we've got to break out of this like really narrow mold, and that's one direction. And then on the other side, we were already out in the world kind of working with our friends on the front lines of social service. So people like you who are like already know that the world is on fire and like I've got to get out there and I've got to fix stuff and people need help and I do not have time to be like sitting on a meditation cushion like taking care of myself. Like all of those folks, right? We were saying, we were watching though those people burn out, right? Like seeing the enormous kind of burden or maybe sense of, hopelessness or despair or overwhelm, the more we become aware of the actual complexity of these systems. And so we looked <laughs> toward that group and said, hey, actually, how do we help you like stay in touch with the like ground of our being and like the lifeblood that sustains us and get in touch with whether it's contemplative or reconnecting to a spiritual practice or practices from our ancestral lineage that have held us. Like, how do we help those people on the front lines recognize like you're not alone in this and we can help you support and sustain. So courage in a sense is trying to orient in a way in between those two worlds can kind of be a bridge, right? And in a way maybe even forge like a new path for some of us to work at those intersections. And so the trainings we've been doing and the training yesterday also was really for people who see themselves kind of in the margins of those worlds and who want to deepen their own practice and take that back into their organizations or communities or want to learn how to bring that forward actually into new programs, practices, and, and really kind of advocate for this intersection. It's time, right? And it's such powerful, it's powerful work. I am seeing and hearing more and more that this is kind of the, the, next direction, if you will. I think that organized contemplative practice, um, if we can describe it in that way, is is going. Um, and I know, so I want to talk more about Courage of Care. Um, it's such an amazing name for an organization and, and from the very beginning, you know, when you vision this and, and took the 
incredible um, risk and the courage it took really to create this um, a couple of years ago. I know that initially a lot of the focus was really around um, supporting educators, um, human service workers, and so let's talk about kind of, you know, what what really drove this for you? Right, like where some of us, and I, I want to shy away from this, thinking that we're like forging some new movement or like figuring out something new, like the world has been calling us to do this forever. And we are just waiting yeah, yeah. for this. And there's, a, I say that because I think there's a necessary humility in that. Like it's been mm -hmm. time. It has been time for a really long time. Um, I, I feel like what keeps me in this is I can hardly bear the ongoing destruction, violence, the oppression, the marginalization, the despair, the hopelessness that is that we experience, that we place upon other people, that we perpetuate, and the deep <laughs> sense of isolation that's really embedded in that. And underneath that, the really deep grief that I think we're maybe as a society or even as a civilization not actually facing, like the deep grief of the loss and the potential loss if we do not get it together like yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I, that, that grief, there's in that grief, obviously there's a deep sense of sadness and disconnection and loss but there's also like a, a kind of longing or like a call to reconnect and to re-energize and re reawaken there's a movement in that that I feel like at least right now in my own process that's where I feel like I'm in I feel like I'm in an ongoing process of grief yeah and I feel that a lot of us sense that and, and maybe some of us stop at the stage of denial or defensiveness like it's not there it's not happening right or it's too big so I can't even deal or some of us start to become awake to it and we feel we become more aware of us, uh, feelings of guilt or anger or rage and that's where our work is and some of us get even stuck further and we start to become aware of the shame especially if depending on where we're located in the system and how we've participated in it and I think under all that first for many or most of us is that deep sense of grief. And if we don't start to touch that and acknowledge that and name that and call each other into reconnection and call for healing practices, like basically game over, trying not to be a fatalist here. <laughs> that's, that's the mood. Like, and, and so many people have been calling us into that. Like I think of Joanna Macy's work. I think of the civil rights movement, I think of basically every social movement in the world, the eco-justice movement, like people have been begging us to get in touch with that deep sense of disconnection and longing. Like the world yeah, is yes. trying for us to actually have the capacity to feel that and heal that, yeah? And in, in my own, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this, been involved in a lot of circles doing trying to do better job around anti-racist work and anti-oppressive work, still very much like a beginner in learning this. But what's been reawakened for me is um, kind of a reflection on the point in our life or in the process by which we, we as individuals, but also as a collective, effectively started believing the lie. 
Mm-hmm. There was something, and I think a lot of young children sense this, and this is why I love working with kids. There's a sense that many children have, even teenagers, that this is not right. Like there's another way. There's another way to be in this world. Like this is not okay. And yes. A lot of us, and understandably, yeah, um, become indoctrinated or socialized actually into believing that lie. And we develop ridiculous coping strategies around that to survive and in some minds even thrive in that. And I think part of the process as adults is reconnecting with that and reawakening that, like getting in touch with like the pre-lie, right? And dealing with the process of having believed a lie and participated in it. And I think the possibility for working with kids is catching them before before that and actually drawing our inspiration and our energy from those fearless little beings in a way who have not bought into this crap right and try and energize and sustain that so that's that's the draw and a lot of as you know you were part of this i mean you and i worked together so many years ago right part of this the the beauty and the promise of doing work with young children is to really instill this and create context and containers to hold them in this so they don't get caught up in the same systems we've been caught up in and that we mm-hmm. encourage them and instill in them a sense of kind of fearlessness and kind of courage, yeah? And this is where the name Courage of Care came from is that as we tap into that, that kind of ground and that sense that we are deeply relational beings, we are not these isolated what have you, that the, the energy, if you will, of the, of the universe, the movement of it is this kind of creative energy, this, you might even say this caring energy that has the, in it like this energy or this will to liberate, to be free, right? As we tap into that more and more, there's a natural courage that's born out of that like a natural power or freedom that's just like, I want to be free, you want to be free, let's all be free, right? And, and how do we tap that? How do we create spaces where people can really feel that more and more? Exactly. Yeah, the, I know we've talked a lot before about working with kids and, and working with young people and, and even, you know, in the, the class that I teach here at the U of A at the beginning, of, of each class, you know, we take a moment to kind of center and there's this reminder of their right to be here. And, and I think, you know, for me, like in, in coming back to that and like wanting to, to offer that as kind of a point of grounding, particularly for kids and, and, and talking to kind of, you know, relating it to as an adult, like our own experiences of, of deep grief around the disconnection. Um, it comes down to, I think, like this very deep rooted sense of, of shame that is, it's generational shame, I think. Um, you know, the sense of sort of not feeling okay and not, or, or, and not being uh, right in the world and the way that these systems are, are structured and that, you know, life needs to look a certain way or you need to present in a certain way in order to be okay and worthy and not really having a clear sense of where 
does that come from? And I, I don't know, I just, I sense more and more. And when I talk with other people too, that have talked about, um, you know, their parents' experience of maybe assimilating um, into the, you know, into white culture and, and, and there's this, there's a, a shame. And I think many, many, many of us are walking around without those clear answers, just sort of a, a feeling. Does that make sense? I, mean, I think the process of oppression and the system of oppression that's most recognizable paradoxically because it's often most invisible in the US is the system of white supremacy, right? And we, as citizens of this country, whether we immigrated or emigrated here only a few generations ago or long before, we are all participating in this in some way. We're all <laughs> caught in it, participating in it, perpetuating it, affected by it, harmed by it, and we're all dehumanized by it in different ways, but all of us are dehumanized by it. Those of us who, in some way, are in the dominant center, right? And our identities are complex and we're not all in or out, but those of us who are afforded certain kinds of privileges and opportunities based on the color of our skin or education or wealth or religious affiliation and so on, we participate in a kind of dehumanization in which we don't, we have internalized certain kinds of ways of thinking about what is good. What does it mean to be a good human being? And to get in that center where there is opportunity and resources, right? So part of this, I think, in some twisted way is survival driven or driven by this misinformed maybe idea of scarcity. We give up a lot of ourselves, actually, to be in that center. We give up our culture, we give up our heritage, we give up our freedom of expressing the parts of ourselves that don't fit in that center. And we live in disjointed lives too. And then we struggle, we have a hard time being in our own bodies as full human beings because all of us have been taught that it's maybe not welcome here. Of course, there are exceptions to this, right? And our brothers and sisters who have been, for the most part, on the margins of that system have internalized to like the nth degree that their very being is not good on some level. And all of us live with the horror and the shame of that of the dehumanization of that, that we move through the world consciously, but really often unconsciously all the time, relating to other people as less than human beings. We, we do this to ourselves, no matter how good or awake we think we are or educated we think we are, we move through the world like not seeing each other as whole and denying parts of ourselves as whole. And I think we're living out of a moral integrity and that's the shame. I think that's the source of it. And it makes sense, right? We developed like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it does, it does make sense. And it is a, it's a difficult process to get in and begin to dismantle. Um, it is, it is incredibly difficult to do, but so, so important to do and and absolutely um pastime <laughs> beyond beyond time um one of the the things that i'm really interested in in terms of 
you know, how, how we begin to create spaces, um, not necessarily sanghas so much, but just, you know, because we come together for contemplative practice in so many different ways. You know, there's meditation, there's yoga, there's, you know, all of these other things that, that um, have really been quite controversial, I think, in a, in a lot of places because they've, they've been designed and, and, you know, appeal to um, a pretty narrow, feels like kind of a narrow population. And that process of being able to create spaces of gathering that are more naturally inclusive and safe and not and not simply respectful but absolutely welcoming for all experience and that willingness to um, be with the discomfort that comes along with exactly what you talked about are you know so much of so much of what's happening in this country in our society you know we're we're not aware of how we are complicit in this i'm thinking of when i did the training with you recently and there was a a point in, in the training where it was just sort of, you know, it felt like it hit me upside the head. The level of, of and, and being completely unaware of being complicit in my work, thinking I had chosen, you know, this profession and social work that was really about, you know, empowering others and, and um, really empowering folks who are disenfranchised on a number of levels and like, wow, okay, and just even by virtue of working in organizations, how that's siphoning away resources from communities that have their own solutions to issues that were created by systems that they were not a part of. Um, I don't really have a question in here. I think it's just, you know, always with you, like, I feel like we just sort of start, <laughs> start dialogue and, and see where it goes. Maybe the question is, given how how so many of these pieces are so insidious and we're so unaware when we're holding the seat um what have you found has has supported you or allowed you so far to be able to step into that that space to make the shift to make the shift from the way that we may have, you know, been traditionally trained to offer contemplative practice, if that makes sense. Yeah, these are really good questions. I think one starting place for me that's coming to mind is when we think about the term compassion, and I like to use the term care, um, we're talking about a way of developing an orientation to the world, kind of like an ethical, or you might even say a moral stance, like a readiness to respond to the world and a commitment in that also to understand what's 
causing, whether it's suffering or what would facilitate more joy and connection and work to make those conditions more sustainable, more available and so on. Like that's the commitment as we start to wake up to that. And the training in, involves for many of us deepening our own ability to be with our own stuff in some way and to really start to undo the systems of oppression we've actually internalized to really actually try to be free, whether it's free of thinking what's good or not good or so on, or being free from shame or self-criticism or fear that we're not good enough or all the harmful internalized things others have have taken upon themselves, is to really be free. But it's also to recognize this the ways in which all of us are caught in broader systems. And I think that's the piece that's actually missing I don't know that we can fully do this work if we're, we don't become more aware of the systems we're caught in. Because like the example you gave, we can, in the name of love and care and compassion, go out and do volunteer work across the world or, or apply for grants that pull resources from communities in need in the name of doing service for those very communities or do something that feels like a great idea to us that challenges the very values and common sense practices of communities that we move in. And so if we're not doing that work, we're, we're not living up to our commitment. We're actually not living up to our compassionate commitment in a way if we don't do that systems work. And so that's, that's a, a huge motivation for me. And in that way, if we're not doing that too, we're, what we end up doing, and this is the I think one of the hardest things to come to terms with is we end up imposing our own agendas on other people, our own oppressive agendas of what it actually means to be good and healed. We actually become part of that in the name of our service work. So I think the more we develop even just that frame, I think that can call us into to starting to deepen in both of these ways. And, and we can't do one without the other. We can't do transformative work if we're not actually doing our own internal work right and vice versa yes i see the absolutely that that balance of if we're able to to change the the macro right if we're able to affect the systems you know it has to come with that true transformation of our own hearts and minds i know one of the one of the really key cornerstones of your sustainable compassion training work is around what you've described as the three modes of care you know really being able to balance the ability to care for oneself um, receive care from others in order to be able to effectively extend care and i think you know so the one area that I think people immediately kind of go to is the challenges in um, self-care. And I think even myself, you know, for a while, like that was, I, that was sort of uh, like, oh, that's probably really where I need the work. And, you know, as I, for me, as I deepen um, with this, it's actually kind of shifted. It's around the challenges around receiving care. I think we, you know, we have such a, like, <laughs> bootstrapper um, mentality that it's we have really uh, ingrained very deeply I think in in many in many many ways that it is a weakness to to ask for what we need or to um, be in a place to 
receive care. Um, and I think that inhibits our ability, you know, in terms of how that manifests for these larger systems you know, that, you're, that we're talking about. Um, so yeah, it absolutely comes back to the core of our own ways in which we think about and the way that we feel about these modes of care. That's just my sense of it, but I, I know that you have much more depth and richness to, to share about that particular piece that is a big part of the work. Yeah, I think you've got it. I think relationality is key, and I think that's the next mini, maybe mini wave in the contemplative movement, if we're lucky, is to really for us to wake up to that. And I think that's what's been lost by many traditions in the transmission and adaptation in certain secular contexts in the West, is what we've lost is this deep relational frame that has held so many of our contemplative and spiritual traditions intact. And the idea, to put it simply, is that we are not simply autonomous beings that work really hard and become enlightened or meet God or transcend, but that we are held in networks or fields of care. And we learn to wake up. We learn to be more loving. We learn to be the image of our divine beings and so on in and through the ways others have modeled that for us and loved us into that being. Like we are nurtured or tutored into this. Yes, of course, we also have to take our own responsibility and do some of our own work, but we are held in that. That is the empowerment, as it's called in certain traditions. That relational dimension, though, I think is also recognizable in other religious traditions, right? And that's, I think, and that's now something that social neuroscientists are picking up on more and more, like Jim Cohn's work at a UVA, which I think is just brilliant, right? Like we are wired as relational beings. But something, it's kind of like a virus, like this insidious individualist frame that we can think about happened in the modern period, like with a kind of turn inward, a subjective turn. It has roots or relationships to the rise of capitalism and more recently this kind of neoliberal focus, like this heightened sense of you as an individual, the system of meritocracy, which we know to be false in the United States. That you work really hard to prove that you're good and that you're only valuable if you produce effectively. Our education system, by and large, has been co-opted by this individualist competitive framework. And it is, a, and our healthcare system largely has been co-opted by this. And it's killing us. I think this is also what's driving burnout in many ways. And this is where I think the, a relational frame can especially be helpful to those of us in service. Is I think we start, people in service, I think feel this in some way. I think many people in service are drawn into it because they're natural caregivers. They're naturally in relationship with their families or their colleagues or their communities, or they have some spiritual connection that, that they get this. But we're trained into this narrow frame where we start to think, oh my gosh, I have to fix this system totally by myself. Like it's on my shoulders. And our practice then becomes privatized. Our work becomes privatized. It becomes about us. We buy into this like individual hero narrative that like to be good, I have to save the world by myself, which is why we see everyone has their own new contemplative program or psychological <laughs> therapy or retreat. Like we've, co we've been co-opted by that and, and it's pulling the community apart in that way, right? 
But this relational model is saying, actually, it's not all on your shoulders. Yes, you're also part of it and you're responsible, but there's a field of us trying to do this. And the more we catch on to that field, the more we, in a sense, kind of get a kind of, I think, a, a power actually from that, that actually is the energy of transformation in many ways. And it's knowing that we're held in that container. So go back to your thing around self-care, knowing that we're held in that container and that fundamentally we are okay on some level is also what allows us to really get deep and do the deep, dark, dirty work that most of us don't want to do. We need to feel held to do that work. We really need to yeah, feel held. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, and that's the, the freeing part of it all, right? That we, we resist um, because there's, there's all this patterning of exactly what you say, you know, the, the archetype of, of the hero helper. And so I have to go in and, and do it all. And then there's, you know, even that, that nature of competitiveness among organizations that are that are doing similar work and and you know all of that um but that openness and the sense of cooperation and and you know looking through the lens differently to see all of the the people that are bringing their gifts um to the work to the effort in different ways and recognizing how we are each, you know, another part of the web instead of, you know, trying to figure out like how to plant, you know, plant a stake first with a particular population or um, whatever the case may be. It, it creates so much ease and freedom. It's like, oh, okay, you know, I can, whoo. I can exhale now and like and settle in and 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 do this because you know it, it allows so much expansiveness I think um, and this is part of what I really love about what you're doing with courage of care in that it's that's exactly what you're creating is you know bringing so many different people together in in different communities from different perspectives around similar issues um, to be together and move the move the work forward tell me about because I know that you're you are this this summer um, offering a lot of workshops and training so at 1440 multiversity I know you've got some things happening and um, doing some other workshops and and brief retreats um, which are super fantastic and I hope that uh, people that are listening check those out because um, they are going to be incredibly powerful and worthwhile um, so Let's talk a, a little bit about what um, what you're sharing about, what you're teaching about now. You know, one thing we're really interested in is building community. And community takes practice, right? Like, it takes practice to be in community. We have to 
learn how to be the kinds of people that we want to be in community with. And we have to actually practice letting go of some of our own stake, like you mentioned in this work, and really learning to trust that the power of that collective is far greater than anything we could ever do on our own, right? And so our trainings are attempt to be in that spirit. And I say attempt because we are a learning organization and forever will be, right? Like we're in this process of how do we keep undoing the bad and doing more and creating more of the good or the open or the inclusivity. And we've in line with these two different directions that courage faces, right? Facing the contemplative world and helping us develop a kind of structural competency and awareness of how we can bring those powerful traditions further in more sophisticated ways while also holding down all the yogis and shamans and spiritual beings in the world, right? And oriented in the other way, how we can help people who are already in the movement or organizers or social justice leaders really stay deeply in touch with the kind of taproot for their practice and find ways, supportive and safe ways of doing some of that deep work, whether it's exploration into the guilt, the rage, the shame, the grief that can be freeing and liberative in their practice. So our trainings coming online this summer, some of them are for the public that are a way of getting a feel for this basic template we have. And we try to move people through this kind of spiral curriculum that helps hit on these different stages. Like how do we come together and build community and collectively envision? How do we develop our own capacities for care and love so we're always in touch with doing our own work? How do we then learn to see what's getting in the way of us radically connecting, loving each other, loving ourselves? How do we then learn to heal from those systems of domination, disconnection, isolation that we're part of, caught up in? And then how do we transform? And with those new eyes, with that new perspective from transform, how do we begin again? So that's those are our public offerings. And those are our retreats this summer and beyond and our education programs online. And our advanced trainings take the advanced version of that and orient it, one, for contemplatives. How does a contemplative use that model to really start to awaken and use some of those tools, whether they're leading their own spiritual communities? And similarly, how do those of us in service use that same template to continue calling us into doing our own work in spaces of community so we're looking for awesome people to come do that with us and build this network i have no doubt that you will fill this each of these trainings with awesome people coming to help you do the work i personally am really excited to start um learning more deeply with you beginning the end of of the summer um, and bringing a lot of this back into our community here and, and being able to um, share this through the Center for Compassion Studies. Really, really looking forward to that. Um, it is indeed a, a deep personal uh, commitment, um, but so deeply worthwhile, I think, on, on many levels. I was talking with a, a, a f another friend recently about, you know, the, the work that we do, I think the, the healing work that we do for ourselves and that, and that we foster or help facilitate um, around us in the, either in the communities where we live or where 
we feel called to share or even um, how we become invited to share, which has been a really incredible part of this process on this journey so far for me, you know, to, to have the invitation to come and share um, in different communities and, and with uh, different groups has been incredibly powerful. But there's this also this sense of not only being able to um, deepen personal transformation, but also this sense of maybe being able to go and start to heal back through the generations to be able to somehow, you know, that, that when we talk about generational trauma and we talk about how that's in the DNA and I just, you know, this idea of when we heal that that takes that back through the DNA for our ancestors as well. It feels powerful. Um, it feels really powerful. I I don't even have the words to adequately express. Um, those of you that, those of you who know Brooke, who have studied with her, if you know her, if you're friends with her in any way, you have this deep, deep recognition of what an incredible visionary and incredible teacher she is. And I think if you're if you're listening at this point, you've heard so much already, you know this, like this, this is, this is absolutely clear. But I think this is one of, one of the really powerful pieces I think that I've learned from you, both through our friendship and just things that we've talked about. And then just, just hearing, you know, learning from you as, as you continue on this path of the work and I, I'm watching you and always, you know, um, I feel like I, I'm learning from you in many ways. So I thank you for that. Um, just sort of taking that in, I guess, for, for a moment. Um, I think that one of the biggest takeaways around, you know, cultivating and, and sustaining compassion um, in this conversation is that, that sense of, of hope and that sense of, yes, even though um, many of us maybe just now kind of coming to the realization of things that so many, um, so many of our, our friends and those in our, in our community and people that, that we don't know personally, perhaps, um, have been experiencing for a very, very long time. And we are perhaps some of us just maybe starting to recognize and this can feel overwhelming. Like you said, there's, there, it can, we can take a couple of different stances. There can be that continued denial or the, this is, you know, so large that I, I don't even know how to, to begin. 
But I think the biggest piece that's, that is coming through in all of this is that, you know, it isn't on us to do this alone, that we have to do it together in, in community. Uh, we do our own work, but we don't have to do it in isolation. Yeah, and I'm so interested these days in just what you said and how we learn how to make our practice and our development, which has been so privatized for many of us, how we make that public. And I don't mean Facebook public, selfie public. (laughs) How we make public our own processes such that they can be held and mirrored within our communities. That is where really deep work happens. We have so much pressure placed on ourselves to figure out our own stressors, deal with our own demons, deal with our own relationships, losses, separations, deaths, divorces, almost on our own, which is so unnatural, it feels like. Like a community is a place for healing and helping us learn how to grow, how to hold things, how to see parts of ourselves we can't see or don't want to see, right? And that's where the real practice is. At the same time, each of us little orbs in that have to take some of our own responsibility for our own work, right? But we're off what we, I I like to think of this as like offering up our process such that it can be seen and maybe be a learning or a gift for someone else or offering it up such that it can be held and healed, really. Like, and that's that's the work of grief is having it acknowledged, having it held, having some sense of reconnection and then some re-energizing from that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that there's the power in that. This has been amazing. I love you. I love you too. This is always so, so powerful to just to be in space and, and have these conversations with you. Um, I feel like we could absolutely continue it for a much longer time. So <laughs> we'll have to revisit it. Next step is we need to, we need to bring you here. So yeah, before, before we close, is there, um, is there anything that you'd like to, to add or to share? I just, well, I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing. And I want to thank everyone else out there in the work. Like, it's really going to take an army of us to do this. And we're all trying our best in this work. And I I want to kind of name that and honor that and lift that up and encourage that, right? And also call us in that to figure out how do we do this better, right? How do we do this better together in a way? Yeah? Invite that. Yeah. Yeah. always always trying to improve to learn to grow in this work Um, there's so so many powerful teachers um, and so many powerful ways to approach this and so much I know there's so much more to learn and yes thank you dear one we're doing this. Well, friends, there we have it. This amazing light in the world, changing the world, 
inspiring us to be courageous in our expansion of compassion. Brooke is offering teachings coming up in the Bay Area at the Courage of Care headquarters in Oakland. I really highly recommend this workshop coming up in October the 27th through the 29th. It's the Courageous Leaders for Collective Liberation Intensive. I'll be there. I hope to see some of you there. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're up to here in Tucson at the Center for Compassion Studies, or if you're outside of Tucson and you want to drop us a line, we'd love to hear from you. Visit our website at compassioncenter.arizona.edu. Thank you so much for being here, for listening, for being willing to expand your own natural feelings of compassion in the world. We'll see you soon. This has been another episode of the University of Arizona Center for Compassion Studies Conversations on Compassion. This has been produced by Gary Forger. Our sound engineer is Gary Darnell. Music produced by Gary Darnell and the incredible team at the University of Arizona Office of Instruction and Assessment. This is Leslie Langbert with the Center for Compassion Studies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>